Yukio Mishima was one of Japan's most celebrated literary figures of the 20th century. An author, poet, dramatist, actor, and for a short time, filmmaker. Over the course of his relatively short career, he refined what was at first a fascinating, but ultimately fatal, obsession with beauty. Mishima regarded the human body as an ideal of perfection, and through intense physical training, he morphed his ideology into a militarism that saw him establish his own private army, which he named Tetenokai, or Shield Society. A descendant of samurai warriors, Mishima held with sacred reverence the tradition of Bon Burrito, the way of the pen and the sword. Here he is in a rare English language interview from 1966. I don't like the Jap Jap Japanese cultures uh, represented only by the flower arrangement of such a sort of peace loving culture. Sometimes uh, we are too sensitive about defilement or elegance or sense of beauty of such aesthetic side. And uh, we need sometimes a sudden explosion uh, to, make, to make us free from it. Born in 1925, Mishima was of a generation that worshipped Emperor Hirohito as a descendant of the gods. But World War II ended in a cataclysmic defeat for Japan. And as Mishima grew ever more obsessed with perfection, he fixated on what he considered to be his country's increasing spiritual emptiness. In his 1969 novel, Runaway Horses, he wrote, Perfect purity is possible if you turn your life into a line of poetry, written with a splash of blood. At the time, that may have read as poetic, but in hindsight, it proved to be prophetic because on November the 25th, 1970, the acclaimed author enacted seppuku. So fanatical had Mishima become that he envisioned his own death as a work of art, harmonizing beauty, action and the body. His aim was to plunge a dagger into his abdomen, pick up a brush and from his own gushing blood, write one final kanji poem. Yet, for all the reverence with which Mishima was held in his own country, it was an American filmmaker, Paul Schrader, who was the first to put his life on screen. That an American director would choose to make a film of a Japanese writer would, on the surface at least, appear somewhat incongruous. But when you consider some of Schrader's other works, perhaps less so. From the very first script he wrote, Taxi Driver, where the central character clearly wishes for his own death, to his most recent film, First Reformed, where a Protestant minister intends on turning himself into a suicide bomber, such tragic ends echo throughout his work, and even more catastrophically, in Schrader's own life. When he was growing up, three men on his father's side of the family killed themselves. First their uncle, then on the fifth anniversary of his death, his eldest son died by suicide. And five years after that, the second son took his own life. Finally admitting to the family's catastrophes, Schrader united with his brother Leonard to write the screenplay, The Yakuza. Now the survivors won't talk to the police, but your friend from the monastery is sure to talk to Tono. The sooner you get out of here, the better, Harry. They take it very hard when an ex-Yakuza interferes in Yakuza affairs. I'm sure Tono will take it hard and he'll try to nail Ken. You better get your ass out of here. And him too. If they want me, they'll find me. 
I don't think it's so serious. Tono violated Yakuza code by this kidnapping. He can't move against me without the approval of the other clans. In this case, I don't think he'll get it. I don't think he'll even ask for it. I'm not worried. In 1969, while Yuki Mishima was writing Runaway Horses, Leonard went to Japan in order to avoid the US Army draft for Vietnam. There, he began teaching American literature in the Doshisha and Kyoto universities. And it was through Leonard's letters home that Paul's interest in Japanese culture was consolidated. Consolidated because, while Leonard was in Japan, Paul was in UCLA writing his master's thesis, Transcendental Style and Film, which focused on three directors, Robert Bresson, Carl Dreyer, and Yasujiro Ozu. While Paul and Leonard collaborated on the Mishima screenplay, it was Paul's cinematic rigor that resulted in a highly idiosyncratic approach. While it does observe the expectations of a biopic, including scenes from Mishima's youth, such as seeing a picture of St. Sebastian martyred by spies of arrows, going to the theatre with his grandmother and glimpsing through a backstage doorway a male actor dressed as a geisha, or his suffering at the hands of a bully in middle school, Schrader then intercuts those events with actual scenes from Mishima's fiction, dramatising the Temple of the Golden Pavilion, Kyoko's house and runaway horses. In other words, showing us what was going on inside Mishima's head. Another way Schrader does this is by way of voiceover, delivered in the Japanese version by Ken Ogata, and in the American release, Roy Scheider. In my earliest years, I realised life consisted of two contradictory elements. One was words, which could change the world. The other was the world itself, which had nothing to do with words. For the average person, the body precedes language. In my case, words came first. What goes on in the life of a writer is what goes on inside the writer's head, as he or she sits alone in a room and imagines. And getting inside the writer's head is something that most films about writers singularly fail to capture, let alone try to understand. Because the true life of the author is the life of his characters, and those characters are the product of the author's day-to-day -day world of imagining, it is that internal life which is the essence of the writer. And that is what Schrader attempted to capture in Mishima. Idiosyncratic as his approach was, what resulted has proven to be highly influential. So much so, I would contend that you can divide films about writers into two eras, pre-Mishima and post-Mishima. And while there are a few notable exceptions to that division, the sheer number of films about writers that came in Mishima's wake and followed its lead emphasise how singular a film it truly is. Firstly, consider the pre-Mishima films, such as Andre Tachin's The Bronte Sisters, Michael Apted's Agatha, Fred Cinnamon's Julia, Charles Vidor's Hans Christian Andersen, Harry Lackman's The Loves of Edgar Allan Poe, Irving Rapper's The Adventures of Mark Twain, or William Dieterle's The Life of Emile Zola, all of which studiously ignored the fictions fermenting inside the writer's imaginations, preferring instead to focus on the world outside the author's heads. Paris, vast, motionless, a gigantic mother brooding over her millions of children, good and bad. Magnificent Cezanne, you must paint it, and someday I shall write it. No, Zola, it's hopeless. You know that people don't want to see the stark face of truth. Even in films about fictional writers, which are not tied down by the need for biographical accuracy, 
the characters are pulled away from the actual art of writing and tossed into a physical world where being a writer is really of no critical significance to the plot. Just how central is writing to, say, Alexander Payne's Sideways, Gillian Armstrong's My Brilliant Career, Alan René's Providence, Michelangelo Antonioni's La Notte, Satyajit Rai's Charolata, Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place, Carol Reed's The Third Man, or Billy Wilder's The Lost Weekend. For all their anguish and ambition, they could just easily have been composers, mathematicians, bankers, doctors, horticulturalists, explorers, or inventors. Best friend I ever had. That sounds like a cheap novelette. Yeah. Why write cheap novelettes? I'm afraid I've never heard of you. What's your name again? Holly Martins. No, sorry. You ever hear of the Lone Rider of Santa Fe? Can't say that I have. Death at Double X Ranch? Oh, Ranch. Now think of the films about writers that have come after Mishima. Jane Campion's An Angel at My Table, which focused on the life of Janet Frame. David Cronenberg's adaptation of William H. Burroughs' The Naked Lunch. Heather Almodovar's Bad Education. Mark Forster's Finding Neverland. Julian Schnabel's account of Jean-Dominique Bobby's memoir The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Or Shari Springer-Berman and Robert Pulsini's film American Splendor. My name is Harvey Picar. Oh, that's an unusual name, Harvey Picar. 1960 was the year I got my first apartment and my first phone book. Now imagine my surprise when I looked up my name and saw that in addition to me, another Harvey Picar was listed. Those films dare not only to show the life of the author, but they dare to show the world as the author encountered it, absorbed it, and reimagined it. Yes, Federico Fellini's Casanova filtered the life of the writer through his writings, much in the same way that Fellini filtered his own life through film in Eight and a Half. Which is to say that Mishima wasn't the first film to do it. But it is more than a coincidence that there has been a notable shift in the wake of Schrader's film. We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. And then, layered on top of all that, Schrader imposed a variety of film styles to make it easier for us to differentiate between Mishima's imagination and memory and the external world. Mishima's final day is delivered in Cinema Vegete with the washed-out colour palette. His past is in traditional black and white, with the locked-off camera often positioned low to the ground in a style readily associated with Ozu. And then for the novels, Schrader opted for a highly-mannered approach. They resemble stage productions in theatre. On Schrader's two previous films, American Gigolo and Cat People, he had successfully collaborated with cinematographer John Bailey and production designer Ferdinando Scarfiotti. But for the novel sequences in Mishima, Schrader approached Eko Ishioka to design the sets. Ishioka had begun her career as a graphic designer before dressing windows in Tokyo's prestigious Marubutsu department store. From there, she went into advertising and her astonishing imagery caught Schrader's attention. And it is Ishioka's influence that ensures Mishima's fiction stands out from the rest of the film as much as Mishima's fiction stood out from the rest of his contemporaries. But as daring as hiring Ishioka was, what is perhaps even more daring was Schrader's decision to hire Philip Glass to do the score.
Having been awarded a Fulbright Scholarship in 1964, just three years later, Glass announced himself to the music world as a unique sound, with his solo for violin strung out. Glass's music is built around repetitive structures, and while he had composed film scores before Mishima, those films had been either short subjects or feature film documentaries, the most celebrated of which would be Godfrey Reggio's Koyana Scazzi. The assumed route for Schrader would have been to hire a Japanese composer, say Masaru Sato, who scored Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, Yojimbo and Redbeard, or perhaps Hikaru Hayashi, who did the music for Kaneto Shindo's Onibaba and Kuroneko. But what makes Glass's music here even more distinctive is that he wrote it before having seen a single frame of Schrader's footage. It's not the first time such a thing happened. Ennio Morricone did the music for Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West so far in advance of Leone shooting the film that Leone actually designed his shots and pasted sequences to meet with Morricone's themes. As well as reading the Schrader's script, Glass then immersed himself in Mishima's plays, novels and the biography. In fact, Glass had already completed three biographical operas on Gandhi, Einstein and the ancient pharaoh Akhenaten. When Schrader heard Glass's score, he, in his own words, did something that would normally appall every composer. He completely mangled and manipulated Glass's music, deleting some sections and repeating others so that they all fit the film. Then Schrader played the whole thing back for Glass, who, very obligingly, rewrote the entire score to fit with the film, which resulted in a curious case of the composer's original work being used as a temp track for the finished film. The difference here being that the work was originally written as a standalone piece of music without reference to the images. Glass's score has proven to be so iconic, it is now used not only as a temp track in other films, but also trailers for films. And in the case of The Truman Show, a complete excerpt can be heard in Peter Weir's satire. Let us finish off with an astonishing truth. Paul Schrader, screenwriter of Taxi Driver, co-author of Raging Bull, as well as an adaptation of Nicholas Kazantzakis's controversial novel The Last Temptation of Christ, has never won an Oscar, let alone been nominated. In fact, it wasn't until 1999 that he was first honoured in America by the WGA with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Admittedly, Schrader's career as a director has had more downs than ups, but while intermittently frustrating, Blue Collar, Hardcore, American Gigolo, The Comfort of Strangers, Patty Hearst, Autofocus and First Reformed all have their fascinations. I find Mishima easily one of the best films made by an American director in the 1980s. And because few can touch his talent at the typewriter, we leave the last word to Schrader. Here he is in 2011 being interviewed by Peter Cowie at the Berlin Alley, explaining how he writes a screenplay. I believe that screenwriting is not part of the written tradition, it's part of the oral tradition, and that every story uh, has to be told. 
you tell it, and you tell it over and over again. You outline it, you tell it over and over again. And uh, by the time you can tell a story to someone for about 40 minutes and keep their interest, you know you have a movie. And so before I sit down to write, I, can, I, I have such a dense outline. Say, if, if I plan this scene to happen on 65, and I have page counts for every scene, and now that scene comes on page 70, I have to decide, did I have five pages of really good material, or should I go and, and cut back on this? Because a scene that comes too late is no longer a good scene. The very same scene that comes on page 65 that should have come on 55 is a bad scene. So it's all about timing. 